0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is The Persistence of Patriarchy with Carol Gilligan. Our opening song is No One's Little Girl by The Raincoats from the 1993 reissue of their album Moving. Carol Gilligan. Professor of Humanities and Applied Psychology at New York University, is very well known for having authored the influential feminist classic In a Different Voice, Psychological Theory and Women's Development, published in 1982. This centered on a critique of the then-current theories of moral development, which literally excluded the study of girls and women, and simply assumed studying boys and men would suffice to give the whole picture within this framework women were found inferior and the moral landscape less sophisticated than that of men. Carol Gilligan showed how wrong that was and how much psychology has been a field for patriarchal explanations of human behavior and she's continued showing us very clearly the sites of disruption the when and the where that the codes and scripts of patriarchy overwhelm our own voices. For today's show we focus on Gilligan's two recent books both out from polity. These are Joining the Resistance and Why Does Patriarchy Persist, this last co-authored with Naomi Snyder. Gilligan continues to focus on the speaking voice and insists that fostering the space for this voice is essential for democracy, care, and love, all of which might be considered as aspects of what is best in the beings we call humans. But let's give Gilligan and Snyder the floor. Quote, Our book begins from the observation that patriarchal codes of masculine honor and feminine goodness enforce a sacrifice of love for hierarchy. Think of the biblical Abraham, willing to sacrifice his son Isaac to prove his devotion to God. Patriarchy hinges on our willingness to make a similar sacrifice, to override authentic connection and love, which hinge on mutual recognition and respect, for the sake of securing our position within the existing hierarchy of privilege and power. A boy seeking to establish himself as a real boy or a manly man needs to cover his feminine qualities by hiding his tenderness and disavowing his desire for someone to be there for him. A girl who wants to be seen as a good girl, or the kind of girl or woman others want to be with, needs to silence the voice that says what she really thinks and feels. Contrary to popular belief, this sacrifice of connection for the sake of hierarchy is neither inevitable or natural. Unquote. And now, Carol Gilligan and the Persistence of Patriarchy on Interchange on WFHB. I think that you've written in in one of these articles and maybe it was one with Naomi that patriarchy persists not only because those in positions of power hold on to their privilege and enforce it but also because it serves a psychological function. Until we understand this function, we will, like Oedipus, walk blindly into our fate. And there you begin with your uh, fairly common themes now, right? Patriarchy, psychology, stories, and Oedipus in particular. Uh, and stories being kind of at the heart of most of what you do. You're very uh, novelistic. Uh, you, you you write in that form as well. So stories are important, and they're important about how uh, for us to sort of represent ourselves and even become our stories frequently. Uh, and, and so... Let's begin with that idea and, and we can move into Oedipus as well. So why, why so much story? I think one of the interesting thing about, about your work is that it, that it actually is about people talking about themselves, you know, talking about their understanding, and talking about their lives, as opposed to a lot of the other behavioral psychology, uh, psychology that works in, in basically large data sets and things like that. So the abstractions of that, that particular discipline. So I'm drawn to yours because I like stories, right? I like to, I like to hear other people tell me some things about. About what's going on with them. So, uh, but I
1: think, I mean, you know, I would say even more than that, Doug, that our life has a narrative structure. It occurs in time. I mean, in what you could say, the changing medium of time. I mean, and it occurs in relationship, and so it's a narrative. And if you cut that narrative and you freeze it, I mean, in a sense, you have a moment that's out of context, and you know, you're interpreting without that sense of what came before. And I could say even more specifically that my research started. I mean, what the the thing that initially fascinated me was how do people act at crossroads in their lives? In other words, when I come to a place and the roads diverge and I have to choose which way am I going to go? And so I was really interested in who's the I in that question. You know which way will I go, and then I was interested in how often moral language comes into play. you know which way should I go mm. what's the right or good way to go and right at the beginning of in a different voice, I think it's like on page two, I say that what interested me was the stories people tell about their lives because I think one of the things that influences us in terms of the choices we make and how we how we go and how we feel about the sto- these choices. Are the stories that we carry with us in our heads about ourselves? Who am I? And also, you know, what I think I should do, or what I think is the right thing to do. Um, and I remember, I, I one of the early questions I asked in this, my research was, "Is there a difference between what you want to do and what you think you should do?" Mm. And you know, that was a that that was a huge question, especially for women. Who really had for whom connecting with their own voice—that is, with their first-person voice—they thought they should do what other people wanted them to do, and that it would be selfish to do. I mean, you could say in a different voice was a change in what that signaled is a change in the narrative, and why the work was was in, in that sense an interruption is psychology didn't think of themselves as telling narratives; they thought of it as the truth. And I asked, you know, I asked narrative questions. Who's speaking and to whom? Mm-hmm. And who's not speaking? And where is this voice located physically? It's in a body. It's in a space. And what are the stories that are being told about human development or sexuality or love or justice or whatever? And in what cultural and societal context and what had been seen as the truth I said wait a minute listen to it it's a voice so your point I mean I came in through a a narrative door and and there are a lot of people who who say in various ways and I would certainly say this that narrative is the language of 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 how we live our lives in time, reflectively, and in relationship. And you, you know, you try to put that into a, into, uh, a mathematical formula and you use that aspect of human mm-hmm. experience. So it's different because mathematics, you could say, is the language of the physical world, you
0: could say. One of the things that confuses me sometimes is that Narrative, like narratives that frame us, versus uh, developing narratives of of our own living. Right. So a lot of times you talk, uh, well, um, frequently you use literature, religious stories, literature as well, to kind of break open those narratives to say, you know, this has been interpreted a particular way. We can look at it this way also. Um, but why why is it that we constantly sort of use these narratives to discuss our own existences like why why bother with an oedipus story why bother with psyche and cupid why why do we why do we get sort of engage in these in these historical stories um or well,
1: you know what i did i mean i'll tell you honestly i mean first of all i've always been as you know i've always been interested in narrative mm-hmm. and i've always that writers often were the best psychologists. I mean, in other words, had the deepest insight into human motivation and, and so forth and so on. But, um, when I wrote my book, The Birth of Pleasure, I mean, I had a very specific question, which is, why are we so drawn to tragic love stories? You know, why are we so moved by Romeo and Juliet or, you know, all these stories, West Side Story? I mean, these stories about a love that this passionate love that ends in death. I mean, and what is our investment in this? And then I said, are we drawn to these stories? Cause this is our story and we, we on some level know that we need to understand this story. I was fascinated to the extent to which psychoanalysts have read the Oedipus story as sort of as though this was not a story, but this was part of nature. Mm-hmm. And also misread the Oedipus story. I mean, for, didn't go back and see that's a trauma story. I mean, it starts with Laius, Oedipus's father, abusing sexually abusing the child. And so the, this whole story that had been read as natural is really a trauma story. And then when I I was interviewing, listening to this is after in a different voice, girls in a variety of settings here in the United States in the, it was the late 20th century, I was really struck by the voices, the sense frank and fearless voices of pre-adolescent girls. It was then fascinating to me to find the voice of Iphigenia in Euripides' Tragedy was that same voice, or Jane Eyre in Charlotte Bronte's 19th century novel, or in, you know, the voice of Arundhati Roy's novel written in Kerala in India, so it was a way of taking my research cross-culturally and across time and culture and say if there is this tension between the human voice and structures of patriarchy so that the pre-initiated voice has a particular sound to it then you should be able to find it you know across so i can't i can't go to the 19th century and, and interview girls in london but i can read charlotte brontë <laughs>
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is The Persistence of Patriarchy, and my guest is Carol Gilligan, author of In a Different Voice, an instant feminist classic in 1982, The Birth of Pleasure, which seeks to use the myth of Psyche and Cupid as an answer and alternative to patriarchal myths, and most recently, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? The question, I suppose, um, about the narrative that happens, um, is then, I guess, a consistent human, uh, situation, right? Humans in relationship and humans in particular structures. Humans in, uh, you know, Iphigenia and, uh, uh, that, that's a particular kind of structure. Right. So you the story, the story that comes out of that structure has to do with that particular context as well. But there are contexts that seem persistent throughout. And you note that I use the word persistent there. So So, uh, patriarchy does continue to play that frame story for for how we tell our stories.
1: Right. And then there are stories of resistance to patriarchy. Mm -hmm. That's why the psyche story comes in.
0: Uh, why is it that Oedipus is important to us outside of perhaps Freud giving it more life and then even reducing it um, in a certain way? But wh- why why has Oedipus been such a story for us?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, just think of the story. I mean, it's the quintessential tragedy, Sophocles' Oedipus tragedy. It's I think Nietzsche writes about it. It is the birth of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Freud writes about it. Laius is told that retribution for his having sexually abused a child will come in the form of his own son. And uh, and Jocasta have a son and Laos thinks, Oh my God, he's going to be killed by the son. So he's going to kill the son. He's going to take this baby and leave it on and abandoned it, you know, drive a stake through its feet. That's what the name Oedipus means, you know, swollen foot and leave it to die. And, Jocasta, the wife, goes along with him. I think it's the quintessentially patriarchal story mm. of male violence, the father putting his life, giving precedence to his life at the expense here of the life of his child. It's Abraham and Isaac again. And the mother, um, being completely silent. And in, this is what's so interesting to me. When you go and read the Sophocles, you know, play, Oedipus, the king, the chorus says, How could that queen whom Laius won, that's the mother, be silent when that deed was done? How come she goes along with it? Why is she complicit? Which, of course, is a huge question about patriarchy, because it can't persist without women's complicity. Hmm. There's the question in 5th century Athens. (laughs) And I think the Oedipus story has been put in as the sort of central, the story, both in Western philosophy and psychology, because patriarchy has been read as nature and it naturalizes men's violence and women's silence neither of which in my opinion is natural
0: right well and- the 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 fact too that uh, this is the ret- like retribution is in the son is part of that patriarchal story as well right the the <laughs> fact that the son will kill the father and has to kill the father to become the man or king
1: right well, then we've read that as natural. Right. And so then I was fascinated to realize that in this first century AD, which is a very interesting time in history, mm-hmm. along comes Apuleius. And in this novel, which according to scholars is, was, you know, Shakespeare borrows heavily from it, you can read it as, you know, the resistance story, how to get out of the Oedipus tragedy. And the myth of Psyche is not just Psyche, it's the myth of Psyche and Cupid or Psyche and Eros. And it ends not in tragedy, but with the birth of a daughter named Pleasure. I thought, this is interesting that it's saying we know how to get out of the end of the story. And it very carefully marks the steps. Hmm. So since it's like, I thought, it's like we have a map. And my, you know, what occurred to me, it was like, you know, if somebody was caught, uh, you know, like behind the lines in Vichy France, and you gave them a map of how to cross the Pyrenees, how to escape from the Nazis. I mean, here's a map of how to get out, how to avert the Oedipus tragedy. Mm. So what the Psyche and Eros myth ends with is, this is in, in the text, a just and lawful and everlasting, meaning a marriage that's not constantly under threat, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to leave you, mm. and the birth of a daughter named Pleasure. And I thought that's so interesting. That the start of a new story is going to start with the birth of a daughter. Mm. Because in certain sense, I mean, the whole Oedipus story, you think, depends in part on, on, um, Jocesta's compliance, her silence. So, right. male viol- what patriarchy demands for its perpetuation, for its persistence, uh, it was, res- it, because it's not natural, is it depends on, Violence and silence.
0: Hmm. Well, you also have there, it's interesting, obviously, the two, the two stories together kind of uh, make the, the Shakespearean canon, right? You've got tragedy and, I guess, the comedy of marriage. Uh,
1: Well, the comedy of the thing that ends with marriage and the birth of a child, and you have the romance plays where it's always the birth of a daughter that saves the father. I mean, you know, it's
0: Mm -hmm. like so. We know these these answers are here for us already. They've been here for a long time.
1: That's that's what Doug. That's what interested me. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. In the tradition, there are the we also have the answers.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: This is a human problem. It's been Around as long as there have been humans and as long as humans have lived in patriarchal structures, there's been a tension between our desire, you know, to have a voice to live in a relationship and a structure that depends on only certain people having voices, fathers, and on living in hierarchical structures, which depend on the person at the top not feeling empathy for the people at the bottom and the people on the bottom not being listened to. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's interesting that, uh, another one of the, the books that you talk about and talk about at length in, in a couple of places, uh, recently anyway, also the Scarlet Letter gives us the map in also, right? Says you can, you, you can look at it this way, but you can also look at it this way. Like you say, okay. another view of Hester, another view. Yeah.
1: You know, I had read the Scarlet Letter, as I think most of us had read it, you know, when I was in high school or something, and I thought it was a tragic love story, and about the wages of, of sin, and you know, so forth and so on. And a friend of mine, uh, when I was, uh, doing the girls' work, uh, said to me, have you, you've got to read Scarlet Letter again. And I read a book that I, I was just stunned. I hadn't realized it. And as you said, there are chapters, another view of Hester, another view of the minister, Some people say that the A means, in fact the word adultery is never used, but what halfway through the novel, many people said that the A meant able. So strong was Hester Prynne with a woman's strength. And then at the end of the novel, Hester tells people who come to her for comfort and so forth, uh, but there will, her firm belief in a new truth will be revealed when the world is ready for it. Uh, that will establish the whole relation between men and women on a sure ground of mutual happiness. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, that's like the Annunciation. The <laughs> <laughs> and then you think, wait a minute, this is 1850, this is Hawthorne. Right. And then you, you read about Hawthorne. And you begin to understand where this is
0: coming from. -hmm. Well, it's a fascinating story, and it's especially, as I think you note throughout, too, the idea that these are canonical texts interpreted uh, generally the one way that suits patriarchy, right? So uh, you talk about confronting them in classes, then you do talk about the interpretation of those stories to suit the patriarchy, to suit the, the particular narrative, rather than the resistance narrative or the other side, the moonlight narrative, I think think that you you talk about in in the scarlet letter
1: which is there in the text so i my my oldest son jonathan became my my collaborator and we wrote a play based on the scarlet letter and this it was done for a while in the early 2000s and this fall it's going to be produced in fullerton california and then classical rep which is a new rep theater in boston Mm -hmm. is also doing it so it's like very timely right now
0: It's time for a break. This is The Bags with Babylonian Gorgon from All Bagged Up, the Collected Works, 1977 to 1980. Stay with us for more on the harms of patriarchy when Interchange returns on WFHB. Back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Again, that was Babylonian Gorgon from The Bags. In this segment of The Persistence of Patriarchy with Carol Gilligan, we continue with how Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter is the template story for our social relations. And then we look at how patriarchy interrupts relationship, clearing the way for oppression and injustice. Obviously, Margaret Atwood had nothing on Hawthorne, you know. I mean, Hawthorne is the the guy that gives us basically our handmaid's tale also prior to that happening, the idea of women, uh, the good wife, you know, this kind of thing that has to sort of fall in line with the uh, patriarchy, with the priests of the era. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, all the other women in Scarlet Letter are called good wives. Right, right. What does Margaret Atwood call them? (laughs) Handmaid, whatever.
0: Well, the wives have different names. I'm not sure exactly yeah. what their, their particular name is. Yeah, they've got, uh, they,
1: they I mean, you know, her thing about of Warren and right, of right. men and so forth. I mean, it couldn't be more patriotic. The woman doesn't even have a name,
0: right? Right? No, no, it's
1: yeah, it's a, yeah. but you actually do know that her name is June, you know, June,
0: it's, right. it's a summer name,
1: yeah, yeah, no, it's. That's a brilliant
0: novel. Yeah, it is. I wasn't trying to take away from it by saying that Hawthorne had all that there before. We have to keep retelling you know, these stories.
1: Yeah. I mean, we these are – we really, really, really – we really have to keep retelling the stories of resistance. Right,
0: right. So in Joining the Resistance, you say that feminism is the movement to free democracy from patriarchy. And uh, in in the newest book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist?, you and co-author uh, Naomi Snyder end with, put simply, patriarchy is contingent on subverting the human capacity to repair relationship. Its hierarchy is premised on a loss of relationship and thereby on a sacrifice of love. Conversely, democracy, like love, is contingent on relationship, on everyone having a voice that is grounded in their experience. And this uh, is, so I began with feminism, uh, as, as a move into democracy and a move to undermine the the patriarchy that really exists within that, that loss moment.
1: Right. Well, which, which demands that loss. Because mm. if you want to set up a structure where some people are superior, I mean, patriarchy, it's fathers, uh, and some people are an inferior, then you have to interrupt those relational capacities that we have as humans that otherwise the people on top will feel empathy for the people... On the bottom, I mean, if you think about the whole immigration thing we've witnessed or the the government shutdown, really the the absence of any human feeling of Mm. people on the top for the people who, I mean, in the shutdown, they had no income or for the mothers and fathers whose children were literally taken from them or for the children who were you know, suddenly taken away from their parents, that that structure depends on interrupting the human capacity for empathy Mm -hmm. and ability to care about what happens. I mean, we're born as relational responsive beings. If you go into a nursery, one baby starts crying, the other babies start crying. I mean, that's where we begin. So you have to say, if you want to set up these structures, then they can be racist or sexist or class determined or on basis of religion where you elevate some people and over other people and say these are superior you have to interrupt relationship what we say is what patriarchy does is it subverts what is otherwise our natural move which is you know we always we move in and out of touch with ourselves and with one another and these ruptures are part of our everyday experience so what we learn is how do you repair the ruptures and patriarchy Shames them because it says to men, "Why do you need this relationship? Are you a baby? You know?
2: Right.
1: Are you a girl? You know? Mm-hmm. Are you gay? I mean." And it says to women because if with girls says, "I'm feeling like I'm not. It. i You and I are not in touch with each other." Patriarchy says it. You know. Nobody wants you to say that. If you say that, no one will want to be with you. You know, why are you always complaining? That kind of thing. Right. It shames the move to repair the rupture, so it renders the loss irreparable. Then the tragic love story. Then the structure of patriarchy. And once you've done that, then you've you've cleared the way. For all
0: forms of oppression and injustice. Yeah, so let me let me ask a question. As you were talking, it does it. Uh, it always struck me that I fall into an essentialist space frequently, only because we say patriarchy, and this is priest uh, you know, oriented. This is generally we we're stuck with this idea of ma- male versus female or man versus woman. And right. uh, when you become uh, when you when you start to look at it and you want to critique it, you want to say, well, why why do men? Uh, why is it men that this has done? that have done this right and obviously as you say patriarchy needs the support of women as well but if we say that men uh, or that man uh, you know has started this sort of dominance space that 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 needs to dominate and needs to be on top uh then you you run you begin to run into those explanations that are behaviorist right or explanations that are evolutionary right you need an alpha male or an alpha male argument
1: But I wouldn't say that. You see, I wouldn't say that. I would say that men start out as humans. Mm -hmm. So do women. And we are as humans, we are relational. So who is invested in this structure of dominance? And it is disadvantageous for men. Look at the Abraham and Isaac story. If you want to honor this patriarchal God... You have to be willing to sacrifice your, the son that you love. But there's or a ag-
0: but there's a promise here. This is part of the issue. It's interesting too, right? Is that in the story there's a promise, right? Yes. If you sacrifice, you will gain.
1: That's for both men and women. Right. Now the other thing about men, I want to say, is patriarchy doesn't elevate all men.
0: No, of course I mean, not. You
1: you speak to black men, you speak to you know uh, Latino men. You patriarchy elevates a certain group of men who are said to be the patriarchs or the fathers. They are the priests. So it separates some men from other men and all men from women. So it's not a man versus woman structure. And I would say it's not what men, men are offered. If you will sacrifice love, if you will live as if you don't really need relationships, as if you don't really need to be cared for and so forth and so on, then you know, you can hold out the promise that maybe you'll become elevated to be the the king, the CEO, the da 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 da. Women are offered too. If you just shut up, if you don't say what you're really feeling and thinking, if you don't say what you know, then it's it's. I quote it. It's in the Tempest, the the daughter of Prospero is offered honor, riches, marriage, blessing. That's what's offered to women. Right. And what's the opposite? Or do you want you you know? If you don't. Well, then you'll have dishonor, you'll be all alone, you'll be poor, and you'll be cursed. And we see that when girls reach adolescence, there's this division between the good girls, the girls we want to be with, the kind of girl we think of as someone we could marry or hire for our law firm or whatever, and then there are those other girls. hmm the bad ones.
0: Well, that's why I like Hawthorne, too, right? Many of his stories take place in that midnight hour or, you know, in the witching hour, so to speak, where people go and into the woods and and are together in a different space.
1: Totally, totally, totally. So I would – in no way, I think – in fact, I think it's anti-essentialist. I think patriarchy essentializes the mm-hmm. gender binary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not – I don't think – it's certainly not me. It's not you, I don't think. I
2: mean, <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, you don't, because, and that's, you see, that's why the trauma of the Oedipus story is really important, because instead of saying, this is how humans are, women are by nature silent, and men are by nature violent, it says no, it says in the aftermath of trauma, anger turns into a kind of murderous act, and uh, people act as if they have no voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, Doug, even the chorus in Sophocles' play says, where was her voice? Why didn't she say something? And when the truth starts to come out in the tragedy, she says, No more truth. And then in Euripides' Iphigenia play, when Agamemnon says to Iphigenia, You know, I'm going to sacrifice you so we can, the Greek army can go to Troy, the first response of Iphigenia to her father is, You're out of your mind. This is crazy. And then when that has no effect, later she says, I want to be your sacrifice. I want to go down in history as the one who made it possible for the Greeks to restore their honor. Aristotle says this is bad character development. There's no motivation for this switch. But I'm saying I was hearing that shift among girls in contemporary public schools
0: hmm. where they have to, they have to find a way to silence themselves and do what the patriarchy needs them to do.
1: And then they get chosen as the valedictorian. They're, you know, so. Right. Forth.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is The Persistence of Patriarchy, and my guest is Carol Gilligan, author of In a Different Voice, an instant feminist classic in 1982, The Birth of Pleasure, which seeks to use the myth of Psyche and Cupid as an answer and alternative to patriarchal myths, and most recently, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? In fact, that's when the
1: word patriarchy came into my writing. Hmm. When I want to name the force that girls are up against. And then when my graduate student, Judy Chu, did the study with four- and five-year-old boys, we saw the same thing happening with boys at four and five, that their, their incredible emotional intelligence and sensitivity suddenly gets named kind of girly. Mm-hmm. And they feel they have to act as though they don't have that capacity. They have to shield it. And you saw their resistance. And there's a beautiful book that Judy wrote called When Boys Become, Quote, Boys. Mm -hmm. How boys are often said to be, which is, it's so anti-essentialist, which is not how the boys actually are if you actually go at four and five and listen to them. Mm -hmm. And one of the moving things I did in my research is I was so moved by the fathers who brought these little boys to school in the morning. These were men in their 30s. This is in the early
0: 1990s. Yeah, you write about this in The Birth of Pleasure. Right? That's
1: right. And I asked, asked these fathers, would they meet with me and talk about their experience of raising four- and five-year-old boys? And we met once, and then we ended up meeting all through the winter. Uh, and at one point, I asked these men, what is it that you see in your sons that leads you to say, I hope he never loses that? And one of them said how emotionally out there he is, meaning, he's out, he's present with his feelings. And another said his spunk, the exuberance, the liveliness. And another said the the sheer joy he has with his friends. And these were qualities that these men felt they had had to sort of mute or tamp down in themselves on the road to manhood. And the question was, would they have to sacrifice these qualities in their sons that they themselves cherish if they didn't want to expose their sons to being bullied or called girls or gay or, you know what I'm saying. Of course, some of these men, one was a professor at MIT, and, you know, one had his own construction company. So it was a real sense of how do you deal with this?
0: Well, there's a sense of that they recognize a loss and see it as a necessary social... uh,
1: in the necessity. Yeah, that was the issue. Yeah. And then you say it's necessary, you know, mm. if patriarchy persists.
2: Right,
1: but right, It's in fact right now it's so costly because, I mean, you know, look at what we're doing to the planet. Mm. Look at it's become right now. It's putting our, our planet, our species really at risk.
0: Yeah, these are difficult questions. It's one of the reasons um, I, I liked, again, joining the resistance uh, uh quite a bit. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot in that last chapter on the ethics of care um, is in an attempt to kind of see the changes necessary to, to make changes. You know, one of the things that doesn't come up, I, I don't think um, very um, specifically, Right? we talk about patriarchy. We talk about uh, the ways that we're, we're kept apart. Um, by not speaking in our tr- in a true voice, perhaps or in, a, in a, an original voice, even, but keep parroting these uh, these things that that keep us in that space of loss and dissociation. But the the thing that we don't that I don't think is talked about much in your books. There's the economics aspect of this, right? So if we talk about how we we live our lives, you know, most of us first and foremost come to this place after. You know, we're brought up by our parents, but we're brought up in a space of economics where our parents have to do certain things to make life happen for themselves and for us. And our economic choices become the major aspects of our lives. And, you know, in in being primarily anti-capitalist myself, I don't. I don't see those two th- like these things are essential to me. To think of patriarchy and capitalism as as going hand in hand, capitalism, as you just brought in, uh, the the environment, you know, the the climate disruption that's happening is a, is a function of a capitalist process of industrialization and profit. So how do we how do we sort of find a way to kind of combat? that tension right we can all talk to each other in a relationship but in some ways the economics of our lives have to give way to those relationships as well that was a lot sorry
1: well yeah no 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 but i mean i wouldn't completely agree with you which is i mean sometimes you think that if you're going to talk about relationships or you're going to talk about psychology you're talking about you know an interpersonal world and so forth and you have to talk about the public world and the societal world i'm saying these worlds are connected Mm -hmm. and a lot of what you know In terms of capitalism, and I think if you, you know, if you read Adam Smith and if you actually read the literature and certainly the critiques, I mean, in some ways it's what has to happen to human nature to perpetuate capitalism. I mean, one of the things I find absolutely shocking right now is in a sense, you know how do the workers at the Boeing factory make planes that they know they they've they've, <laughs> they've compromised the safety of these planes, or mm-hmm. what about you know the opioid drug manufacturers who lie to the public about the fact that these drugs are addictive? I mean what has happened to these human beings that they're you know and you're saying they're driven by the profit motive? Yes, but even in the public, we have examples of resistance, and even among people who, you know, are are operating within a capitalist system. So Mm -hmm. I don't think I I just none of I mean, I think this tension is just you can it plays out at every single level. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I love it now. I saw this resistance in pre-adolescent girls and in these little four and five year old boys. So now I look and I think that outspoken girl who doesn't back off. They're in the Congress now. They're in the House of Representatives. I mean. That's Ocasio-Cortez, all of these women. And, you know, so it's not just a, a, a it, it's a its a potential. It's a human mm-hmm. possibility. And if you look at The boys, I just wrote this paper. In fact, it was just published in the Los Angeles Review of Books about three men who are filmmakers who are basically in their films. Um, this is Paul Anderson and Spike Lee and Paul Schrader have made films that I say it's like act two of In a Different Voice. I mean, they're saying there's a need for a a different voice, a human voice, and um, for an understanding of care uh, that is active and, um, you know, shows the risk of caring and the risk of love. So... Breaks
0: the gender binary, basically. Right, right, right. Well, you know, one of the things that popped into my head while you were talking about uh, the idea of profit is plausibly the idea of superiority. It's simply a, a superiority space, right? To be able to make uh, money and gain, uh, to accumulate things, to to show your superiority in that world is, is plausibly motive enough, I suppose. Um, you know, trying to think about capitalism as a a way in which patriarchy asserts itself um, rather than, you know, trying to understand capitalism as outside of it.
1: Yeah, because you could say, what is driving some of these CEOs who you, you, you already think have an excess amount of money to think they need even more money? Mm-hmm. Then you say, because somehow they're operating under a notion that manhood, to be a man means to be to be on the top so there's you know that you're always threatened by somebody else who's making money and you have to make more money than they're making and there's no limit
0: well there's only one real king one true king
1: (laughs) yeah right like god yeah right
0: it's time for another break this is man thinks woman from mecca normal from the 1987 album oh yes you can more with Carol Gilligan on the need to repair relationship in these desperate times when interchange returns on WFhB
2: Man thinks woman when he talks to me Something not quite right Man thinks woman when he talks to me Something not quite right I talk to men in the ground dance the rolling sea i dodged to men in the ground dance the rolling sea the world is a wave dancing back whatever i throw in the world is a wave dancing back whatever i At a party In a hall And drunk I talk to a man And he wants me to bite his tongue I bite his tongue And he wants to know How I know where the pleasure pain lies And I said I know Like the women in Africa Who carry their babies against their bare skin They know They can sense they can feel when the little baby has to pee. Man thinks woman when he talks to me. Something not quite right. Man Welcome
0: back to Interchange. That was Mecca Normal me. with Man Thinks Woman. For our final segment with Carol Gilligan, we'll look at the still face experiment with infants and then move on to the way patriarchy makes use of pathological responses to loss by fostering emotional detachment and compulsive caregiving and how these subvert our capacity for repair
2: the world back whatever
0: Carol, if you don't mind, define a little bit the ethic of care and, and, uh, and how, you know, we need to try to work on those kinds of things. One, one of the, the, the struggle I have with this is that we come at this, you and I come at this, you're, you've obviously been at this a very long time. I'm in middle ages and, and, and so I am only coming to this late in life, um, and a lot of what needs to happen for this Space of repair or to allow this kind of, um, life that is probably what we might actually call natural, you know, the space of repair, um, mm-hmm. that we don't give it space at all until much later for most of us. And then, then if we're lucky, you know, we'd learn repair. Uh, out, you know, within this particular environment, it's a very rare opportunity for so many people to even understand that that's what they're missing, this opportunity to repair versus silence and selflessness or self and selflessness, you know. Um, we're fitting all these, these template stories that capitalism and patriarchy tell us, uh, you know, inform us to sort of fit into, to, to conform to our culture. The problem is that we, we, Don't seem to come to these realizations in time in the sense of it happens much later after so much trauma, after so much trouble, after so many world events happen. And right now we're in a desperate time, I think, Carol, in a desperate time where we need to be able to apply some of these things, apply what you're talking about to find ways back into those environments of care. Uh, those, those, those spaces where we really can create that care space. You mentioned one thing, I think again it's in joining the resistance where, uh, there was an experiment in, in Canada, I believe, about introducing newborns into classrooms.
1: Oh, yeah, to bring the Roots of Empathy program, Mary Gordon's program, and, which is spread through Canada, which completely cuts down, Bush. she says empathy can't be taught, but it can be. Caught.
0: That seems an essential program.
1: That's a terrific program, but it's and it's an example of what you can do. And I think actually, I mean, I start Naomi and I start our book by talking about and anyone can Google this. You just Google still face experiment, mm-hmm. and it's a experiment. It shows a one year old baby with a mother. It could be with a father. It could be a black white father. It doesn't make any difference. And the parent is told, the parent plays with the baby in it, then the parent is told by Ed Tronic, this is his experiment, to make their face still, that is to stop responding. The baby instantly picks up the break-in relationship and immediately moves to repair the rupture. So we start out protesting the loss of relationship, and our first move is to move to repair. The baby repeats all the gestures and sounds that had gotten the parent's response. So that's why in our book, I mean, we came to this. It was astonishing to see how precise. If you shame the move to repair, that's how you render the rupture irreparable. And then you created the conditions for any form of oppression and injustice because you can break relationship and then you shame when people move to repair the rupture. I would say the evidence is really strong now. We, across the gender spectrum, Across the whole spectrum, we begin with a desire, with a voice that's, in other words, we can communicate our experience to other people and a desire to live in relationship, not walled off from other people and with the ability to repair the inevitable ruptures in connection that occur in the course of the everyday.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So in the absence of trauma, in the normal course of things, these capacities would develop. You'd educate them. you know, like you do with other children with other abilities, here's how you can become even better at repairing relationships. And a lot of the work with girls showed how strategic girls were. I mean, how in some ways clever they were in their strategies for how you repair ruptures. But then if you come along and you subvert that, then you create a situation where the rupture seems irreparable. and then you've got to say, how do I get out of this trauma story or this tragic story? Because I agree with you. I think we've reached a crucial moment where I, what I think I see a little differently is I see the threat. I mean, we have the completely unapologetic patriarch in the White House, which is astonishing. But we also have the resistance in the Congress and in filmmakers and in the arts. So I think we're living in the middle of this conflict right now, and I think it's really helpful to be able to understand what's going on, and that we have the capacity for resistance in all of us. Even under the most extreme conditions of tyranny, there are always some people who speak truth to power. And what's interesting is what they say is, I mean, you know, uh, this is not heroic. It was a simple human obligation. In other words, any person would have done this, that is, would have helped this other person. So what's shocking, really, is that if we, in a sense, lose that capacity to pick up other people's feelings and respond to them, you know, like the people at the border mm-hmm. when children have been taken away from them.
0: Yeah, it's one of the points you make uh, to uh, um – you know that that's not the exception. Should be that people act the way the way we normally do instead of the person that saves you know three hundred uh, uh, people from the Nazis or uh, you know that that shouldn't that shouldn't be an exception.
1: And what's so interesting, Doug, is I mean among those people you know who when Jews knocked on their door they said come in or the zookeeper's wife in occupied Warsaw hides three hundred Jews in the zoo in the center of the city. I mean, she's a zookeeper. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not like. <laughs> so it's like, and and you 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 listen to them what they they say, and this is so consistent that. I did what any person would have done.
0: Yeah, it's human to do this.
1: It's human to do this. Yeah, but
0: you point out the differences between even having this conversation about heroes, right? Heroism, these kinds of things are uh, inimical to actually trying to understand relationship and being together and doing things that are human in relationship. The outside of that is this kind of superhero space of trying to act a part uh, above the human.
1: Right, like you're super. It takes a superhuman right. to do
0: that.
1: Right. It really honestly you could say it's actually a sweet notion. It takes a human being, you
0: right. know. Right. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is The Persistence of Patriarchy, and my guest is Carol Gilligan, author of In a Different Voice, an instant feminist classic in nineteen eighty-two. The birth of pleasure, which seeks to use the myth of psyche and cupid as an answer and alternative to patriarchal myths, and most recently, why does patriarchy persist?
1: There are structures invested in separating us from our humanity, and what where you really see that, where I saw that, let me put it in the first person, was when I just, you know, began to do what I thought was the most straightforward work in, in human development, psychological development, and followed children, and saw... Children, you know, who were recognizably human across the gender spectrum and suddenly coming up against a force that said, if you want to have relationships, you have to not say what you're feeling and thinking. Right. And Some of these girls would think, but if I'm not saying what I'm feeling and thinking, then I'm not in a relationship. And people would say, you're not supposed to see this or you're not supposed right. to say this, you know.
0: It's scary to be vulnerable.
1: Well, I would say, yeah, you know, but you could say relationship. If you're invested, if you think safety is being in control, mm. then you can't be in relationship because right. being right. in relationship, I mean, the need to be in control or dominate and so forth, or mm-hmm. vulnerable means you can't be in relationship because to be in a relationship is to be vulnerable and then you say yes, but to be human means to be vulnerable. It does, and
0: it means to believe that vulnerability is just a commonplace, and that we, we we respect each other in those spaces. You know, one of the things that struck me, um, again, um, and I think it's from the the work with uh, – you talked about John Bol- Bowlby. Is that right? Yes,
1: Naomi. That's Naomi. See, that was Naomi. It was Naomi Na- Snyder's. Naomi Snyder, mm-hmm. she was the one who came to me and said, I know patriarchy persists because people with power and privilege don't want to give up their power and privilege. We all know that. She said, but is there a psychological factor that's also driving this? Mm-hmm. Does it have to do with trying to protect ourselves from uh, the vulnerability of relationships so we won't have to experience loss? Because mm-hmm. she had lost her father when she was five years old. And she writes about
0: that in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at one point there, uh, and I was thinking again about trying to trying to understand the the that that uh, traumatic space or that space of loss, and then and then creating uh, because you're not able to repair, you you sort of dissociate uh, and detach from from these relationships and even from your environment. And and finally, it, it made sense to me how capitalism works within that space. You know, within the consumerist space, is that that detachment is uh, is filled. Right. You attempt very much to fill that dissociation, that detachment with stuff. With with, objects.
1: Yeah. And that's why it's stunning when you actually read John Bowlby, who did the, he was the pioneer in studying attachment and separation and loss because he said the first response to loss is protest. You try to repair the relationship. And that's, you know, that motivates you and you, you, you in a sense seek to reconnect with the person that you've lost it could be yourself too then if that doesn't work if protest is ineffective then you move into despair which is a kind of listlessness and a kind of passivity and inactivity and then finally it goes to detachment and he says that the child who you know detaches from from people starts instead to attach to objects because mm. of the sense that you can control objects and i thought you know, just along the lines that you've been talking about, I thought there's capitalism. Right. capitalism runs on this on the replacement of people with objects that you're afraid you know you don't you, you feel you can't deal with the vulnerability of relationships, you feel loss is irreparable, you don't know what to do if you lose connection, and so instead you fill it with material objects, and then you think, allll oh, be observed this in young children it's really stunning mm-hmm. and You know, so so yeah, that's what we write about in Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Mm -hmm. We say that when you start to understand this as a psychology, that begins to give us a way of understanding a politics that otherwise feels inexp. I mean, how do you even how can you understand what's going on now? and then you start to say, I I start to see what's driving
0: it. Let me conclude, I guess, Carol, even though I I don't ever want to let you go, um, (laughs) with, uh, again, I think this is from Joining the Resistance. You say, a feminist ethic of care is integral to the struggle to release democracy from the grip of patriarchy because it roots that struggle in the exigences of survival, the evolutionary need to put children's well-being first, ahead of concerns about women's chastity and the perpetuation and augmentation of male lineages.
1: quoting me and you're also quoting this wonderful quote from Sarah Blaffer Herdy mm. who says patriarchal ideologies that foster uh, the chastity of the you know the chastity of women and the perpetuation of uh, male lineages undercut the long standing priority of putting children's well being first and mm. I think that's it's
0: so brilliant Well so the feminist ethic of care is essential for democracy can you, can you well, yeah. elaborate well, a little bit on that
1: Yeah, sure. Because what you have to do, I mean, it follows just from where we were talking, because you have to protect vulnerability. I mean, you have to realize we as humans are intrinsically vulnerable, meaning able to be wounded. And you have to protect our our relational capacities, which, as you said, are integral to our survival. I mean, that's what the research now is showing across the human sciences including hurdy's wonderful book mothers and others but you have to protect that vulnerability because if you don't if you if you traumatize it then it, in a sense you know you you undercut the relational capacity and you open the way to all forms of oppression and injustice and and you the the, the power of patriarchy there is that gender is such a powerful um, in a sense, you know, lever for initiation, because it affects how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about our desires and how we feel and our prospects in the world. So you say to a boy, look, uh, if you, you know, why are you crying like that? You know, are you a baby? Aren't you a big boy now? Or, you know, don't you want to grow up to be a real man? And you say to a girl, I mean, you know, Uh, don't you want to be the kind of girl other people want to be with? And I quote this girl. She's the valedictorian of her class. And she says, if I were to say what I was feeling and thinking, no one would want to be with me. My voice would be too loud. And she says, but you have to have relationships. And I say to her, but if you're not saying what you're feeling and thinking, then where are you in these relationships? So patriarchy, it offers us a deal and we need to not take the deal because it's a very bad deal across the gender yeah. spectrum. So you think just not
2: with
0: That's our show. We'll close with attitudes from the brat from nineteen eighty one. Thanks to Carol Gilligan for joining us today to discuss her work with primary focus on The Birth of Pleasure, Joining the Resistance, and Why Does Patriarchy Persist, co-authored with Naomi Snyder, these last two published by Polity. In these desperate times when all we do is antagonize each other in the service of capitalism and oligarchical wealth, Carol Gilligan shows us another path to take. Begin that journey right now. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. It's just my